It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. We were discouraged with all the negativity in the world and decided to focus on finding some good out there. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast with me, Teresa. And me, Amy. We're two ordinary moms looking for inspiration wherever we can find it. So, Amy, I'm curious. Last week, your highs and lows. Well, my high was doing that party uh, at UGM with your mom Mm -hmm. and her sweet Bible study ladies. That was so fun. Yeah. And it was neat getting and to know her. Sa- and Spencer, and my Spencer guy, and, and my and nephew. Ben, yeah, yeah, that was neat to see them. Awesome. So that was super fun. Yeah. I have to say my low was this morning when we almost got T-boned. Yes. And I'm so grateful that I only got the front of my car hit. <laughs> Your new car! My new car, but I just kept thinking, if if Ryan didn't slam on the brakes, yeah. I mean, we could have been, we might, I might not be here today yeah. doing this. So that's also a good thing to today to, to be you, grateful yeah, for yeah but still yeah so unfortunate yeah i have to laugh because you know we always say looking for inspiration wherever <laughs> we can find it well found it at the grocery store this, <laughs> this past weekend i came across a new salad dressing brand queen of hearts amy brought me a, a <laughs> jar and i can't wait to try it I love the name. I think that's pretty cute. Yes, adorable. Uh, it was featured at the front of the store, and I ended up chatting with a gal who was giving out samples. The cool thing about this salad dressing is made from real ingredients, mm-hmm. not artificial ones, which kind of remind me of episode 54. We chatted about Paul Newman, Paul Newman. Who, who created his salad yeah. dressing in his basement, and that turned out to be a huge product line. But I was curious about the protein aspect of the salad dressing. You normally don't think of salad dressing as a source of protein, Well, the dressing contains cold-pressed hemp seed oil and hemp hearts and hemp protein powder. So there's the protein. So exciting, which is new to me. So I'm, I'm not a clean eater, but yeah, yeah. yeah. So I thought that was really quite cool. So I chose a sassy Italian dressing. I have to say, I felt kind (laughs) of guilty about buying it because Ryan makes really good salad dressing. Um, it's a good, it's it's a good, good variety. Yeah. So when we got home, I we did like a riff with a, a caprese salad. It was really good with heirloom tomatoes and mozzarella. It was so mm. good. But I was intrigued about this company. Um, what, who, who's behind this yummy and super healthy vinaigrette? Well, it started over 10 years ago. Tanya Farman ran a nonprofit, Project um, Koru, um, which helped young adults get their lives back after cancer. Mm. Tanya had lost her brother Scott to leukemia. He was just 19. She partnered with a pediatric surgeon who's the co-founder, Garrett Zallin, who saw the daily effects of cancer at Dornbecker Children's Hospital in Portland, Oregon. So in 2007, Tanya and Garrett set out to support young adult cancer survivors by combining the healing power of community and the outdoors. This is a really cool nonprofit. We should check Mm -hmm. this out sometime, but I'm just going to get back to the salad dressing. So now 12 years later, you know, the more Tanya worked with cancer survivors, the more she felt nutrition was a roadblock preventing cancer survivors battle the disease. During her research to find nutritious options, she kept reading about the beneficial properties of nutritional hemp. So taking inspiration from her grandfather, who was known as the pickle king of the Pacific (laughs) Northwest, because he was working with farmers from the Skagit Valley in Washington all the way down here to the 
you know, Willamette Valley in Oregon to grow his cucumbers for his pick, pickling business, she decided to create a salad dressing making hemp hearts the star ingredients. This is also the backstory of the Queen of Hearts, the name, so that's pretty cute. But mm-hmm. there's several flavors, Green Goddess, Herb Ranch, Spicy Sesame. I love that the Queen of Hearts um, is a woman-owned and operated right here in Hood River, Oregon. And I love how Tanya is using her personal experience with cancer to help survivors by combining the healing power of community with the outdoors, with her nonprofit. But now her latest venture, developing a tasty, nutritious salad dressing. Yes, it so, sounds like we need to make a trip to Hood River. Yeah, maybe check it out. Maybe we could have a Lucy and Ethel moment yes. with the salad dressing. <laughs> I don't know. Episode 95 today, I'm going to talk wow. about um, a gentleman named Jesse Thistle. Ooh. I need to start writing down where I get book recommendations. Yeah, so someone recommended this to you? Um, well, I, I'm sure I read about it somewhere. Okay, yeah. Um, I'm always saying I read a particular book that I'm not sure where I heard about it, and this one falls into that okay. category, so I'm not sure where I got the suggestion. Right. But, um, From the Ashes by Jesse Thistle, and I have to say that I devoured this wow. book. Not because it's a feel-good book. Yeah. And actually quite the opposite. Do you remember that episode of Friends where Phoebe only watched parts of It's a Wonderful Life? And when I say only watched, oh, yeah, Yeah. we haven't seen the movie, but um, she watched the parts where it seemed like things just couldn't get any worse. Right. And she said it should be named, instead of It's a Wonderful Life, it should be named Sucky Life, George (laughs) Bailey, or something like that. But that was this book for me, till the very end. So you had to hang in there. Yes, I knew he survived. (laughs) Right. Because, obviously, he authored the book. But um, I just couldn't put it down because I really couldn't believe that he was, that things could get any worse for this guy. That he was surviving through all of this. A girlfriend taught me years ago to never tell someone that it can get worse. (laughs) Her husband was fighting a terminal illness, and she knew firsthand that it can always get worse. So she was frustrated when people would say that to her. Right. And reminded me that those words are just never comforting. So... Consider that the theme through the majority of this book. Things can always Always get get worse. worse. It was like going through, um, it's like going by the scene of an accident. You know that you should look away, but you just can't. Right. You're looking to see what just happened. You're trying to solve it. That was from the ashes. I was intrigued from the start, knowing it was about this indigenous man from Canada who battled addiction. He was abandoned numerous times in his life. He ended up homeless. And that's just a tidy way to describe his life. It being, you know, we're suburban yeah. moms here. Right, right. We like the neater descriptions. I'm not really comfortable hearing the uncensored story, but if we refuse to listen to the whole story, right. it leaves us with such a limited understanding. So this was really good for me. Um, how can I help hurting people and work to make the world a better place if I'm too weak to look at reality? Yeah, right. So this... This book was a huge, huge dose of reality for me. I told you about the guy who refused one of our homeless bags. Oh, that's right. Um, so we made homeless bags to pass out for people yeah, that we saw on the that streets. Was... And it was the super hot day, and you'd think just the water bottle alone he would have wanted right. the bag. But, um, you know, he asked what was in it, and he, he really only wanted cash. After reading some of the schemes and desperate measures that Jesse had in this book, things that he'd stooped to, it reminded me to stay strong with my offer and give him the food and the bag, right. the stuff yeah. that we had in the bag instead of the cash. You know, it had gum, applesauce, bars, whip. Right. I mean, whisp, it, it, it had lots of stuff for him. 
Jesse Thistle was the youngest of three boys, all very close in age, which reminded me of my own kiddos. Lots of work for his mom. His mother was a victim of domestic abuse, sadly with at least two men that we know of. Her glasses at times would be broken. Her face had bruises. You know, he only remembers his younger childhood with her. Even though she tried to hide it, she still had these, you know, black and blue marks on one side of her face. One day she'd finally had enough of Sonny's garbage. That's their father, and she finally left him. For a time, the boys stayed with their mother, and while life wasn't perfect, they didn't have much at all, because they didn't have much money. They at least had the love and attention of their mother. A few months after she left, Sonny, the father, sobered up, and he came to get the boys. He'd always been very convincing and told Blanche, the mother, that he was sober and wanted to have the boys live with him for a month or two, but he'd return them right after Oh. promising to stay clean and sober yeah. while they were with him. And I think Jesse wrote that it lasted that day. That's got to be hard for them. So. Yeah, for the, uh, for the yeah, kids. Yeah. Any money that Sonny got went to his drug habit. While most parents would make sure their kids ate first, Sonny was the opposite. I, it reminded me, I remember Giannis's dad yeah. back in... Um, episode 93 where he would tell his kids he wasn't hungry so that his kids would make sure to eat right. you know, the food that they had. This guy was the opposite. Sonny would hide food and hire cupboards oh my just so you know it would be for him. And he would know if the boys had gotten into it. He used the boys to help him beg for money. They'd go through trash for leftover food. Have you ever heard the, the phrase trash pandas? I have not. Okay. I'm so glad that I was not the only one because yeah. I had a friend on Instagram that commented on um, raccoons being little trash right. pandas. Yeah. And then the name of this chapter in this book was Trash Pandas, and he said mm-hmm. that's what they were. So basically just, you going know, through things, trash. yeah, going through garbage. But anyway, they were looking for leftover food and garbages, disappointed if they dug through the garbage right after it was picked up because they, you know, didn't have enough options. It. Right. Anything they found was fair game, regardless of expiration dates. If there was green mold on it, on the bread, or the meat, green on the meat, they would just cut out the mold, and the rest was fine. I had a hairdresser who ate fish. She told me that, you know, she had fish. Her husband made fish one night for dinner, and she got home, like, the next day. It was almost, like, 24 hours later. She ate the fish from the dinner. It was not refrigerated. And I was like, how did you not get sick? But she had a stomach of steel. And I think these kids wow. must have had a stomach of steel. Yeah. If I ate that, I would have been sick. sick for days. They'd scrounge the streets for coins, at times begging in front of convenience stores. Their father would use the boys to try to get sympathy, explaining that they needed food while he was standing there smoking a cigarette. <sighs> One time their father came home with a bunch of change and told the boys to sort it out so that he could count it. He said, Daddy got paid. Jesse could pull out all the pennies, which he thought was fun. He thought it was like pirate school, so he's excited about it. They counted the money, and the boys were so excited that they'd get some food. Unfortunately, now think, so excited to get some food. My kids. Yeah, we take that so for granted. granted. (laughs) Unfortunately, their father was a liar, and he didn't use the money for food at all, but drugs instead. One of the boys even reminded him that they hadn't eaten since yesterday morning, which wow. what, they were counting this in the evening, so it had been over 24, 24 hours. So wow. these are hungry, growing boys. Yeah, and it's which, not their fault. No, not at all. It meant they'd have to go dumpster diving if they wanted to eat or bed. When that wasn't enough, Sonny taught his boys how to steal. 
The boys were hungry one day, and their father instructed them to run when he told them to, in the opposite direction as the father. When they entered the store, their dad distracted the store owner, spilling milk and eggs in the aisle, and while the boys took advantage of it and filled their pockets with jerky sticks, candy, anything they could grab. The boys ran away as they had been instructed, and they watched from the bushes as the store owner waved a mob and screamed at their father. Jesse not only loved the food, he was excited that he finally got to eat something, but he loved the thrill and excitement, uh, so he got a taste of that. Yeah. He became a really good thief and would grow to be too much like his father. Uh. One day, the boys were in the apartment, hungry as usual. Their father was out, I'm sure, you know, and they decided to try and share a turnip. That's what they had in the apartment. That's how desperate these young guys were. As they were trying to cut pieces of the raw turnip to share, there was a loud knock at the door. The boys had been instructed that if anyone, anyone came to their apartment, they needed to hide. So they dropped the knife in the tournament. They ran for the bent in the, one of the back rooms. It was big enough for them to all crawl in. They ran, scurried in, and used a string to pull the metal oh, crate wow. in so that it looked like it was yeah. shut. But the knocks got louder and louder, and they announced they were police officers <gasps> and that they knew the boys were in there to open up. Hiding in the vent, they heard the officers enter the apartment, search for the boys, it went on for quite some time. Oh, wow. Finally, they noticed the turnip on the ground. They noticed a pillow was still warm. So they knew the boys were in there. Plus, the neighbor lady across the street had been watching and said that they had not left the apartment. The woman across the street had actually informed the authorities that the kids and drug use, and she you know, constantly watched the father leaving them alone. So they also commented on all the drug paraphernalia that these kids were having to see. You know, the kids wow, are in the vent. Yeah, here but all the stuff. Yeah, but just all the stuff. It was clear that they were in a dangerous situation. When they finally discovered that the boys were in the vent, they behaved. The boys behaved like feral animals, and who could blame yeah, them? They're probably scared. Yeah. I mean, they'd seen things that no one should ever experience. They'd find their dad passed out on the bathroom floor from drugs. They saw him constantly choosing booze and drugs over food for them. They knew more about drug paraphernalia in grade school than I did at 50. (laughs) And that's because of this book, which shows me just how naive I still am. The boys were fortunately removed from that dangerous situation, but sadly just thrust into a new one. They didn't know what a foster home was and just kept telling the other kids that their father was going to pick them up as, as soon as he found out where they were. More experienced kids that had been around for a while told them that they also believed that ones too, but they just hoped to be one of the lucky ones, Uh as in someone wanted them. They'd be picked to go home to live with someone versus the center. While they did experience a foster home who would take all three boys, they were correct to believe that a family would come and get them, just not the family they hoped would rescue Uh them. It wasn't their parents. It was their paternal grandparents. Which might seem like it was better. Yeah, that would... Yeah, you would think, mm-hmm. in theory, better than taking their chances in foster care. But it really proved to be another sad chapter in their lives. Cyril and Jackie, the grandparents, came to pick them up, drove them back to live with them in Toronto. And while they're trying to do the right thing and keeping the boys together, the experiences these three boys endured under their roof made you understand why Sonny, the dad, might have been trying to escape and, oh. you know, it turned yeah. out the way he did, not to blame their parenting, but right. it definitely contributed. 
Grandpa had left his horrible home and went to work when he was just 13. So he expected the same from his grandsons as well. To say they participated in corporal punishment for their discipline would be an extreme understatement. Not to mention the verbal abuse. Oh. They called them names, yeah. a-hole, oh. I mean, you name it. And these poor kids just was awful. I can understand their disappointment in their son, Sonny, but they seemed to take it out and hold a grudge toward the boys. Yeah. How? Just give me an idea. How old are these boys at this point? So this is like grade school. Okay. When they're coming in. They're, All right. They're just trying little. to get a visual. Yeah. yeah. They held this grudge toward the boys for their father's wrongdoings, even though it was... Yeah, I just it's a legacy of it. abuse. Yeah, yeah. yeah, their house had no pictures of Sunny. Oh. Didn't have any pictures of the boys. So just yeah, they just didn't feel like they fit in. Their grandfather was proud of them when they were following in his footsteps, like helping with I can't remember what those things are called, like a little car go kart go kart what? thing. Yes, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Or working construction. The grandfather always had Jesse bring him a cold beer after work. Oh my gosh! Yeah. But it was practically impossible for the boys, particularly Jesse, who was the youngest, to get their approval. Jesse thought his grandpa was hardest on him because he looked the most like his father. Combine the lack of love and approval with habits and life skills that they had learned from their father, you have a very sad story. Yeah. The mom came back into their lives for a while. She came in and gave, like, the oldest son... A Conan the Barbarian comic book and oh. said, you're a fighter, you're strong. I can't remember what she yeah. gave to the second one. It wasn't anything that big. To the to Jesse, the youngest, she gave a picture of her and all this matted hair holding a little baby. And she she that was her way of telling the boys that they had a new brother. Oh. So she was with another, you know, she had gone on to another relationship. And they had now a younger brother, which was extremely hard for Jesse because he no longer was the youngest. He, right. he wasn't the baby. Yeah. That's hard in any family. Yes. Let alone when you don't really yeah. have the family unit. All three of the boys consecutively failed second grade. Oh. They weren't allowed to eat grandpa's food, which he it reminded me of Sonny. Yeah. He got special cheese because he worked hard and cranberry juice because the doctor recommended it for his gout. Their grandmother was constantly complaining about how much they were eating. Once again, they're growing boys. They're, yeah. they're little. Boys eat. Yeah. Kids eat. In any event, the family intended the boys would inhale whatever was served so much so that it was hard not to notice. Aww. And I think they were embarrassed by it, but they were hungry. They right. just couldn't control themselves. Yeah. One day, Grandma noticed a bunch of empty cheese wrappers left on the table, and she was furious. More than half of Grandpa's cranberry juice was gone, too, and she was seething. <sighs> she laid into the boys, demanding to know who did it, and explained those were for Grandpa. No wonder their dad, too, hid the best food from them. He had learned from his parents. When they all denied it, she said it was time for them to go back to the children's shelter. She said her and Grandpa had already discussed it, and that was their only option. She told the boys to go pack their bags, and they did go pack their bags, but they opted to go out the front door and run away instead. Oh, wow. They didn't get very far before they figured out that they really didn't have anywhere to go. They had yeah. nowhere to turn. So Little. I know. They walked back to their grandparents' house, and Jesse's older brother walked in alone to take the blame for the cheese, Aww. just so they could come back home. He mm-hmm. knew it would mean a beating, but that's how much he loved his brothers. Mm-hmm. That was a common 
theme throughout the book. Even yeah. when Jesse was struggling, the um, Josh, the middle brother, sent him like a thousand dollars. Jesse kept, or the older brother, at times let him live with him. I mean, they they de- these brothers definitely Took care of loved each other. each other. Yeah. After their mother had allowed their father to take them, they really only had each other. Jesse not only looked the most like his father, he also behaved the most like his father. The things he did were horrific. One day, he was at his friend's, Brian's house, and Brian showed him a nest with three robin eggs in it. Brian knew the mother's, you know, the mommy bird's schedule, and she he'd watch the eggs while the mother went out to eat. Jesse offered to watch the eggs while Brian ran into the house for some lunch. Instead of watching the birds... He grabbed the little blue eggs, stuck them in his sock, and ran off. Oh, no. He tripped on his way home, fell, and the eggs broke. When Brian's father, who was a police officer, came over to ask why he took the eggs, he lied. I mean, this guy lied all the time. Yeah. One time, his grandmother had questioned the boys about her missing, I can't remember if it was JCPenney catalog or Sears catalog, (laughs) but, you know, catalogs back in the day, um, with pages missing from them. Certain pages yeah. with skin, because his, his dad also had a lot of skin magazines. The police officers commented on that, too. Of course, he lied. The dog outed him, though, <laughs> one day, walking on his bed, and Grandma could hear the crunch, crunch, and all the crickling of the pages in there. But even when it was blatantly obvious that he was guilty, like with our robin eggs, yeah. he still would just lie. His friend, Brian, didn't talk to him after that, which probably was a good thing for Brian because Jesse just kept continuing to go downhill. At times, he'd go pick up cigarettes for his grandmother at the market. The owner knew his grandparents, this is just Flora's move, and allowed it. Jesse was fine doing it since his grandmother, without her smokes, was unbearable (laughs) for everyone to be around. So one day, he heads to the market, and he stopped by some older kids asking him to buy them some players. His grandfather had warned Jesse about this group. He knew they were trouble, and he told Jesse to not even talk to them. So he knew he could get in trouble just by talking to them. Still, he stopped and was persuaded into buying cigarettes for them. He goes into the store. He asked for the players' cigarettes. The owner said, your grandparents don't smoke players. And he stutters, and he's like, my my, my uncle's here. And and so the owner was clearly on to him. He said, next time you need to bring a note. Okay. But he went wow. ahead and yeah. sold him the players for that time. When he turned his back to get the cigarettes, Jesse decided to grab what he could from the candy shelf. <sighs> he stashed bubble gum and chocolate bars into his pants before the guy turned around. As he was leaving the store, the guy, you know, calls to him and he said, you know, be sure to tell your grandparents hi. <sighs> and a bar fell from his pant leg onto the sidewalk. He kicked it away. He was just so relieved that he had gotten away with it. <sighs> Plus, he got the change from buying the players for the older boys. I think it was, they gave him like a $10 bill, and I think they were only six-something. So he got some money. Yeah. Still not worth it in my mind, but when he got home, his grandma was waiting to pounce. The store owner had called and told him that Jesse had bought the odd variety of cigarettes, that he was hanging around with the troublemakers, and that, weirdly, his candy shelf had been wiped out after he left. Once again, caught red-handed, with the merchandise in his pants. Yeah. And he he can't. What can he say? Alive. He said the older boys had given him the candy in exchange for buying the player cigarettes. So with the robin eggs, he explained that he was jealous of the eggs, which this is yeah. just heartbreaking. Because he's being honest and right. truthful in the, in the book. He's saying that he saw there were three of them, just like Aww. the three thistle boys. Yeah. He was upset that the mama robin loved them so much. 
he thought if he took them, he in some weird way would have that love again. The boys just kept thinking that their dad would come back to get them, get himself cleaned up, and they'd eventually live happily ever after. Their grandparents had lied to them, telling them that Sonny had been in the hospital, and that's why he couldn't help with anything. They later would admit that he actually had been in jail. When the grandparents had gotten wind that the boys were dirty and starving and headed, you know, into the foster system, they went to pick the boys up. One day, Jesse and his friend Leroy had helped themselves to what they called brown pop. And even the de- Sonny had given them brown pop when they were hungry because oh. it filled them up. And this, this oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the brown pop was grandpa's beer at this point. When his grandmother came down to see what all the commotion was about, she discovered that the boys were drunk. This was grade school. She gave them some water and bread, sent them outside to walk it off. She said they they looked like a bunch of drunken kid sailors. Leroy was his best friend and probably the only friend friend really that he had. Jesse really had so much stacked against him. Kids teased him at school saying he lived in a teepee because they knew he was um, Native American. And he actually had, at times, you know, gone to this, he called it a hippie camp with his mom years and years and years ago. But anyway, kids, as we know, can be cruel. He lied and said that he was Italian, not wanting to admit that he was Matisse and part Cree. His older brother, Jerry, on the other hand, embraced his heritage. Sometimes Jesse would hear Jerry quietly beating on a drum in his room. Sometimes he'd wear traditional indigenous pieces. And he was trying to learn more about his ancestors, the complete opposite of Jesse. Jesse would just laugh at his older brother, Jerry, when he would see him out on yeah. the, you know, walking at school when he was out smoking with his friends. Jesse finally lucked out with a sweet girlfriend who made the best blueberry muffins. <laughs> That's probably good. That's Some how we food. Met Some food. They dated for quite some time, Aww. and he cleaned up his act. He oh, got good. a job at the produce department at a local store. He'd saved up $5,000 to buy a car. That's awesome. One day, 5.45, his grandfather was driving him for an early morning shift, and he told him that he wanted to buy a car, that he had saved up money for one. Yeah. His grandfather slammed his hands on the steering wheel and said, no way. He told Jesse that he'd drive drunk. He'd kill someone. There was no way he was going to get a car whether or not he paid for it. That just started a downward spiral. Wow. After only, he made all that progress. Yeah. No, he didn't believe in him. No, not at all. He just kept thinking that he was going to be like his father. So that spiral only continued momentum, gained momentum big time with drug use. Uh-huh. So he blew his money, that $5,000, quickly on drugs and alcohol, buying his, air quote, friends, yeah. rounds to party with him. One party, he cheated on Karen, his sweet... Blueberry Muffin Girlfriend. Aww. And instead of doing the right thing, he called her up and broke up, not giving her a reason and totally shattering her heart. His family was furious since she, by far, was the best thing that had ever happened to him. And they knew she was a rare find. Yeah. He soon lost his job at the grocery store and decided to head out west with Leroy. Jesse's older brother had tried to help him out at one point, letting them stay with him. But the brother came home one night to find them smoking pot. And he was a Royal Canadian police officer. He couldn't have that behavior with people in his apartment. Running away didn't end well for either of them. Leroy called home asking to come back, and they refused. Probably had something to do with him borrowing their car to run away. Jesse finally tried to call home, too. 
But his grandpa just said he was an a-hole and just like his father and to never call this house again. Living out of Leroy's car, Jesse goes into detail with just how close they came to death between starving and their drug use. Another crackhead explained that they were constantly overheating. He said they were really hot all the time from acidosis. Their bodies were just too acidic and they were like eating Mm -hmm. themselves. Yeah. He said it also made them smell horrible as well all the time. Jesse's lifestyle put him in extreme danger all the time. He's lucky he survived between the drugs, the shady characters he kept company with, and just his self-hate. He knew he was a failure, and I don't think he felt like he deserved any better. He woke up to find himself sexually assaulted once. He almost died falling from a 35-foot oh high gosh. window with his own version of Bruce Willis and Die Hard. Oh, boy. He was trying to get yeah. in his brother's oh, house because he didn't. his brother never trusted him with a key, which I don't blame him. Yeah. But he tried to kill himself with a whole bottle of um, slow-release Tylenol, which I guess is very difficult to treat because it can get stuck in the gut and it's slow-release. So um, I just think... You know, so many things. I think people expected it from him, too. When he fell out of the window and screamed for his brother to come help him, his brother mumbled that he had work the next day, brought him down some crutches. I mean, the guy broke so many bones, and he was lucky to be alive. He somehow used the crutches to climb up the stairs. His girlfriend, who also was living um, with the older brother, she just was like, I need to get some sleep. Stop being so dramatic. When he called, I mean, he used yeah. his palm to call 911. They're like, you're lucky to be alive. But these people just were expecting, right. you know, and, yeah. just didn't, didn't expect anything from him and expected the worst for sure. Because of his poor choices, people expected these awful things to happen to him. Yeah. And he didn't disappoint. He got caught stealing from a store that he had taken all sorts of, all sorts of merchandise from. The security guard brought him back one day. To a room with the owner, who was a Cantonese woman, she waved her finger at and yelled at him, said that he was a crackhead that stole from her. She saw him stealing ginger and steel wool for his pipe. While she gave him a lecture of a lifetime, she also told him that he was too skinny. She ordered one of her her employees to go get him a two-go baggie of food. I think it was like ramen and stuff. she She sternly told him to not steal from her. And her simple act of kindness, by her making sure he was fed... Paid off. He didn't steal from her again. I could go on and on forever with near-death experiences this guy had. He'd get clean only to find himself using and in a worse predicament than, you know, the time before. I learned all sorts of slang for stealing. Like, if you pinch (laughs) something, that's a word for stealing. Yeah, he had all sorts of slang for stealing. Totally educated me in the world of drug use. Most definitely not in a glamorous light, but in a desperate pathetic, sad way. As horrible of a person as Jesse was, it was impossible to hate him. He was a product of his parents and his grandparents. He, like all of us, just wanted love and acceptance. Unlike most of us, he was particularly hard to accept because of his horrible lifestyle choices. Yes. One time he credited the police officers with pretty much saving his life for arresting him. He had just been released from his first try, his first go at the Harvest House rehab, and he quickly fell into his old routines when he was out. He was in the middle of stealing a BMX bike 
on turf that he knew he oh, shouldn't no. be working yeah. at, but he saw these gold rims and he knew he could turn the bike, you know, sell it and get drugs. So the guys in charge started beating him up. Oh. When the cops showed up, Jesse had this knife stuck in his face. I mean, they were oh, really yeah. going to most likely kill him. So the police officers did save his life. They kept asking him who did it and he yeah. you know, wasn't going to rat him out, but... He spoke of times trying to take his own life. He once went to jump from this building. He was drunk and high on crack, and he heard a woman screaming at him to get down. He instantly got mad at her and didn't understand why she wouldn't mind her own business. Just leave me alone, you do-gooder, is what he must have yelled at her. And when he said that, it, it just made me think, you know, are people think? uh, yeah, I just was like, maybe people are thinking that about all sorts of do-gooders out there. They just want them to leave them alone. So anyway, it turns out that she was the soup lady at the shelter and she recognized him and knew what he was planning, knew, you know, his story with his grandparents. And fortunately she talked him down. Another time he took a hundred slow release acetaminophen. He'd crossed boundaries with his friend, Leroy, and basically lost his best friend. He took the pills and ran to the hospital, told them what he had done, and he gave them Olive's phone number. Olive was the woman, the um, Christian woman that kept taking him in, but eventually just had to... She had the um, kids. Yeah, she had to say enough was enough. And apparently it's like slow release acetaminophen is very hard to come back from because it is that slow release. So he was in a lot of pain from that. The bulk of this book was bleak and depressing. Yeah. The guy would go weeks without a shower. He hid in a dumpster for stealing like thirty dollars. Wow. But he smelled so bad he knew that the police officers between the infection in his leg and just oh, no. not bathing, yeah. he knew everybody could smell him and so he had to hide under the garbage. He tried to trick his dealer into thinking he had dynamite. So he walks into his dealer, and he has a road flare, but he stuck something in the middle to, you know, hold him up. All these guys are, they're holding guns. So fortunately, they thought he was joking, so they didn't take it seriously, but they thought he had guts. So they didn't kill him, but he risked his life for going in there. Held up a convenience store with a bagged sub sandwich, you know, in the oh. little wrapper. Resorted to emptying his soon-to-be. So he the, he was going out with this girl named Samantha. But he left, and before he left, he emptied out her bank account. So he oh. took the last $400 she had. She had changed her, turned her life around. So oh. she was doing better. He left her high and dry with her rent bill, you know, and other bills to pay. So wow. that, yeah, she definitely was an ex-girlfriend. Just when I thought things couldn't get more dire for Jesse, they did. I was drawn to it certain each chapter had to, you know, he had in fact reached the bottom and it would be uplifting from there. Right, right. But that didn't happen until pretty much the end of the book. We know that Jesse's married now and living his best life, but I think we'll read more about that best life in his next book. I read that he's working on that. That's great. This one was purely that roller coaster of lows and more lows. Right. He finally escaped from those he reminded me so much of an updated version of the money pit remember that movie where just it's hard to watch yeah still in all the garbage for lack of a better word he reminded me of just how similar we all are he was jealous of the love those blue robin eggs had he was jealous watching alex p keaton get a hug and forgiveness from his tv father and family ties after alex had alex p keaton had tried speed it wasn't a jealousy of material things with these people, but instead he was envious seeing others have love yeah. and acceptance that he had never known. It just breaks my heart to know 
how many Jessies there are out there yeah. desperate for love, but caught in addictions. And, you know, it makes loving them very hard. Right. For some, impossible. During one of his arrests, he met Rodney, another criminal who knew the Thistle name. So he asked Jesse if Sonny was his father. Turns out Sonny had been one of his best friends, and he thought the world of him. I guess he was, you know, they were yeah. close. When Jesse kept pressing to find out, you know, more about his father, he said, you know, it's too bad. They got him, you know, what happened to him, and he was asking about it. He said that they got him back in 1982. Didn't you hear? That was it. He didn't ever see Rodney again. In prison, they lived by the criminal's creed. Oh. I guess it's live for today, forget the past, damn the future. Oh. He wrote, Jesse would write, that's how I can fight the darkness now because I was the darkness. At the Harvest House, the director encouraged running. Okay. So he worked, one, the director had worked with different shoe places in the area and they would donate used shoes. Oh. And Jesse got these donated, used pair of Asics, but they yeah. were new to him. And he was so excited because he felt like it was a fresh start. But I love that this director encouraged them to run. And right. he said it was a better addiction than, you know, it, it gave him right. the dopamine that the, the, the drug rush does. that these, yeah. Yeah, that these guys were used to. And um, it was a healthier one. Right. The death of Jesse's grandma, and then six months later, his grandpa hit him hard. His grandma had been proud of that he finally had earned a certificate in jail and encouraged him to keep pursuing his education just before she passed. His second go-around at the Harvest House, he was a model resident. Aww. So he finally got yeah. scared. He, he, he had joined a Facebook group when he was in there. Someone showed him how to get on. And um, he learned that his friend Leroy, who had basically unfriended him, like, not just in the Facebook sense, right. but, like... literally. Yeah. Um, he had joined the Army, and apparently he turned his life around. He also connected with a girl that had been... Who had been kind to him in middle school named Lucy. She helped him stay, you know, on the right path, reminding him what his grandma had said. And when he wasn't pursuing enough, because he went back to carpentry and was working yeah. for his, someone with his uncle and doing, like, table, you know, countertops for 14 to 16-hour days. So, hard manual labor... And she reminded him of the dreams that he had when he was back in the Harvest House. And she said, when I picked, you know, when you left, you just had a garbage bag. You had no items, but you had a dream. Oh. And so she encouraged him to live that dream. His story reminded me that there's always hope and we yeah. just can't ever give up. Everyone gave up on Jesse, including himself. Fortunately, he scratched and clawed his way out. I'm thrilled that now he's proud of his Matisse Cree roots. Because oh, before, yeah. he's you know, he was this teenager who made fun of his brother for embracing their, right. their family heritage. Not only is he embracing it, but he's an assistant professor in humanities at York University in Toronto. Wow. That's awesome. Which his girlfriend, you know, really pushed for him to go to York University. And she, did, she, she believed in him. Yeah. So then he believed in himself. He's come a long way from the kid who never made any effort, just accepted that he was dumb and failed out of school. I'm also not alone in loving this story. Out of the Ashes was the top-selling Canadian book back oh, in 2020. Yeah. He just some of the accolades. He was the finalist for the CBC Canada Reads, Governor General's Academic Medal in 2016, the Indigenous Voices Award, and just a right. whole bunch of awards. Yeah. yeah. Jesse has most definitely risen from the ashes and escaped the life his father passed on to him. 
Sometimes he said it meant just to stick to a goal for one minute, then two, and so on, which that's going to stick with me because yeah. I think you can use that with anything. Right. He has a photo of his father in the back of the book asking for anyone with information about his dad, Sonny Thistle, to please contact the hotline that he provided, which I think is pretty amazing yeah. that this guy would want anything to do right. with the people yeah, who raised him. But once again, that gives me hope. That forgiving heart. Yeah. We need to pay attention and take care of those around us. So many of us are hurting under the surface. Most importantly, it reminded me that we all just really desire love and acceptance. That's all he was looking for. Regardless of the shell we're in or the front we put on, that's what it comes down to. Definitely was an eye-opening book for me, and I can't wait to read his next one. Yeah. The Awareness of Emptiness Brings Forth a Heart of Compassion. Gay Snyder. Totally laughing because you commented on finding inspiration wherever we can find it. Right, right. Salad dressing. Well, this was out of the Costco Connection. The Costco (laughs) magazine. (laughs) Seriously, though. Um, This guy, Roy Wigan, he has run several hundred milers to raise funds for rural Ethiopia. He spiked 12 days, 1,200 miles, starting from Los Angeles, finishing in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He's raised more than $19,000 for this organization um, called Digging Deep. So I learned about this guy in the Costco connection. I love it. So we can find stuff all over the place. Amy's usually talking stories about water. Yeah. We got a water story. Yes, we do. But I found this story about a group, so I'm sorry to tread on your Oh, no. <laughs> but most of us in the United States are fortunate enough to have clean running water yeah. available to us. I we know. take it for granted, especially my children take extremely long showers. Our sinks, our showers, our toilets are always working and always available. For most Americans, we think of places in Africa when we think of people lacking basic clean water and sanitation. Yeah. In episode 36, Amy talked about what a huge impact there was in making clean and consistent water available to people without safe and accessible drinking water. An estimated 1 in 10 people in the world live without clean water. That's around 771 million people. Where water is not easily accessible, families may have to spend many hours of the day collecting water. Right. We talked about that a ton, that... Um, my, Muddy Mildred. And, my kids had a teacher in, um, that would make them walk around the gym with two oh, you know, big home, buckets. No, the Home Depot orange buckets. Oh, wow. Filled with water. Just to get, they do it for like almost like mm-hmm. an hour just to feel what that would feel. And that is, yeah, that is not even, work. and that's not even what a most fraction of, fraction what, of what that would yeah. be, but it's a good. Well, that, I think that's great to yeah. show them what people have to go through. Um, as a result of them having to go far, travel to get safe water in isolated rural areas or highly impoverished areas, children often miss school right? Yeah. to help their families gather water for drinking, cooking, and farming. It impacts women even more dramatically, like everything else mm. said under my breath. But in Africa alone, women spent a cumulative 40 billion hours a year walking to get water. Wow. Yeah. So if all of your time is spent collecting water, how on earth do you have time to do anything else, including earning an income? And often the water that's obtained isn't even safe to drink. Waterborne diseases kill thousands of people each year. While other countries like Ethiopia, Rwanda, Uganda, Malawi, 
India, Nepal, Pakistan, and Colombia are struggling with providing their citizens with clean water and proper waste water control, the United States is not immune to the problem. More than 2.2 million Americans do not have access to running water or working toilets. Yeah, yeah. 44 million Americans do not have clean water that's safe to drink. Black and Latina households are twice as likely as white households to lack indoor plumbing. 30% of the Navajo Nation live without clean water or a toilet. That's what it was. Ryan's dad has a pl- had a, used to have a place up in Nia Bay um, with the mm. Macaw Indians. Mm-hmm. And he they didn't have a running water. They had like um, this like well you had to go and check yeah. the pH. Mm-hmm. D, you know, it was it was like so you'd have to have different people come and, and sign up and mm-hmm. do this different Different, oh my gosh! Different yeah. chemical tests to yeah. check the water Just and make sure it was safe. I mean, he finally he sold his home because yeah. it was like he's getting older, so it's yeah. still too much. Yeah. But it, I mean, I, it's a real issue. Yeah. I saw that. So, thirty percent of the Navajo Nation live without clean water or a toilet, and the number is increasing. It should be the other way yeah. around. Federal funding for providing water services to American households is fourteen percent of what it was in nineteen seventy seven. So this group, Dig Deep, is working to help solve water problems in the United States. Dig Deep does not view themselves as a water charity, but rather a human rights group. Having clean and accessible water and sanitation is a human rights issue, as everyone should have access to these necessary life-sustaining resources. That just seems like common sense to me. Totally. The fact that it hits minority communities at a significantly higher rate means that the gap between water access for whites and for minority populations must be reduced and eliminated if possible. Dig Deep has been trying to provide more access to clean running water for people throughout the United States, particularly in the Southwest and Appalachian regions. The Navajo Nation Reservation, which is it has parts in Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico, has had struggles with water accessibility. A Navajo Nation home is 19 times more likely than a white home to not have access to running water or toilets. Dig Deep has been working to change this. Funded primarily through donations, Dig Deep can bring in a 12,000-gallon underground water tank, bury the tank, plumb the house, install a water heater, and pump, fill the tank, and inspect everything in just under 24 hours. That's amazing. So it's great that this guy's already earned nineteen thousand yeah. dollars, and he's just. I love the name. Dig deep. Dig deep. It's pretty clever. Yeah. Once the home's set up, regular deliveries of the water tank by the tanker truck allow the family to hot and cold running water. This is a major game changer for these people. They also install solar panels to run wow, the system. Super good. Very yeah progressive. In most weeks. They can provide the water system to 10 to 12 families per week. In the Appalachian Mountains of West Virginia, the water pipe system is failing. Most of these have been installed more than 100 years ago. So contamination from local mines have definitely contaminated the water. And extreme poverty with the collapse of the coal industry has led to significant water insecurity. In 2021... Dig Deep brought running water to 112 families and is striving to reach 400 families in the next few years. In addition to directly helping people gain access to water, Dig Deep is also gathering information about areas affected, population numbers for people without water, and demographic information to help try to get good information to government officials and try to encourage government investment in water projects. Finally, Dig Deep has been encouraging people to get to take 
the four liter challenge. Most American homes use 100 gallons of water per day. I don't even want to know what we use. Yeah, I don't either. In 2.2 million U.S. homes and countless more homes around the world, that's not an option. In fact, many people survive on only four liters a day. Four liters. Wow. Dig Deep is challenging people to try to use only four liters, about a gallon, for all of their water needs for a 24-hour period. They believe doing this challenge will forever change a person's perspective on water. Dig Deep is a nonprofit organization and relies on donations to get this life-saving and life-changing water to people in the United States. If you want to donate or find out more about their many projects, check them out at digdeep.org. And I kind of feel like we should take the four yeah. liter challenge or right. see if any of our listeners want to take it with us oh, and then let us know how it goes. As you grow older, you will discover that you have two hands, one for helping yourself, the other for helping others. Audrey Hepburn. Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com or leave a comment on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories, follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week.